So I asked my friend Lynn Crosby what her response was to the U.S. election, and she sent me a new poem, written just for us. Here's Janet Green reading Lynn Crosby's Here, Pussy. We elected him for his bell, conscientious vigilance, and long, tensile whiskers that feel what is there yet unseen, for his daring yet cool manner. From the wicker basket in the cabinet to the dangerous, vermin-ridden streets he leaps, twitching the pink nose we call precious. He's sprayed a perimeter around us, savaging near and present dangers with his sleek ginger paws, his face stuffed with songbird feathers. He asks that we conquer and indulge, basks in dreams of a piping hot globe filled with missing posters, his kills, gutted to scraps on trees like leaves sick with synthesis, and yowls for more and more, shaven forests to piss in, extinctions for his feelings that are easily hurt, fights for a reason to unsheath his claws. The list is long and dull red. The air is still and jet black all day for him. Dreaming of a way out, I gut myself and roll around like a mechanical sardine he merely bats at, bored. He and Satania brood over their litters as more and more people hold hands and fall from the sky. Here's the gist of it. In five days, America will have a new president-elect. I'm not putting money down on either Republican Donald Trump or Democrat Hillary Clinton. Never was a gambler. Though of a couple of things, even the wary can be certain in these uncertain times. For sure, this mad electoral circus is going to be the most watched election the world has ever experienced. There'll be folk chiming in, as there have been already, from Alaska to Ziganshore. People all over the world so interested so believing they have their own stake in the election's outcome, they're not wrong, that an argument could be made that the vote should be extended to include all of us. We spend a lot of time fighting the idea that we're global citizens, and we're already behaving that way. But, for the time being, who wins the 58th presidential election to become the 44th president of the United States is to be decided by Americans only. And today, we're going to ask after American novelists who've anticipated dire political results, such as many imagine a Trump ascendancy would be. I'm fond of saying that writers inhabit the middle space between the world as it is and as it ends up being represented to the world, and that they act as shamans of a kind, often divining what we don't yet know is already on our minds. Sinclair Lewis, Jack London and Robert Penn Warren are three great American novelists that, despite, or maybe because of their love of country, have imagined the worst, observing their peers as the Montreal-born, Scotiabank-Giller-nominated author Alex Olin, now resident in Pennsylvania, has also been doing. These same two guys work out at my gym every afternoon. They spend an hour in the weight room, but only half of that time involves exercise. The rest is about politics. They're on opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they love to debate. Every day they take apart the issues while flinging weights around. Lift, drop, argue, repeat. He's a businessman. He creates jobs, says one guy. He's a pathological liar, says the other guy. So is she, says the first guy. That's overblown, says the other guy. Benghazi, 
says the first guy, switching from biceps to glutes. Overblown, says the other guy again. At least it'll be a change, you know? I'll take my chances with something different. You know who should be president, says the other guy. Elizabeth Warren. Love her. Elizabeth Warren is a... Uh, says the first guy, and then he notices me eavesdropping and stops talking. I'm usually the only woman in the weight room. The other women cluster on the stairmasters, endlessly climbing to a higher level. Sometimes I wonder what these guys say about women when I'm not there. Maybe I don't want to know. Among the reasons I like Alex Aline's writing so much is that she's such a keen observer, though also temperate. I'd say those men at the gym would have had a pretty good idea they were being watched by her, and that it wouldn't have provoked them so much as made them reflect, feel the delicate weight of the woman looking at them. Sinclair Lewis was another fastidious observer of American life, though not so temperate, at least not all of the time. Babbitt, his 1922 novel of the uninquiring middle class of 1920s America, and Main Street, his story of an ambitious woman wanting more than small-town America is able to offer, are literary classics, as is Elmer Gantry, his ruthless dissection of American evangelist fundamentalism. It's hard to think of an American author who did quite so much mapping of his country's emerging identity, work that got him into trouble, some compatriots threatening prison, but also won him the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930, a whole 87 years before Robert Zimmerman, another native of Minnesota, caught the attention of the Swedes. Yes, the first and latest American Nobel Prize laureates in literature both hailed from the same northern state, one that might as well be Canadian that's so close. Another novel Sinclair is famous for, one that gets away from him stylistically here and there, temper does get the better of him sometimes, is his 1935 satire of a populist senator, Buzz Windrip, railing against Jews and immigrants and insidious security threats and hearkening after traditional American values. Sound familiar? Buzz Windrip, elected as president, becomes dictatorial, instituting draconian laws and employing a militia such as Adolf Hitler was starting to do in Germany. His opponent is the liberal, Doremus Jessup, who, later than in this particular passage, is incarcerated in a concentration camp and makes his way, via a revived underground railroad, to Canada, before returning to lead the resistance. From Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here Doremus Jessup, so inconspicuous an observer, watching Senator Buzz Windrip, could not explain his power of bewitching large audiences. The senator was vulgar, almost illiterate, a public liar easily detected, and in his ideas, almost idiotic, while his celebrated piety was that of a traveling salesman for church furniture, and his yet more celebrated humor, the sly cynicism of a country store. Certainly there was nothing exhilarating in the actual words of his speeches, nor anything convincing in his philosophy. His political platforms were only wings of a windmill. Doremus had never heard Windrip during one of his orgasms of oratory, but he had been told by political reporters that under the spell you thought Windrip was Plato, but that on the way home you couldn't remember anything he had said. There were two things, they told Doremus, that distinguished this prairie Demosthenes. He was an actor of genius. There was no more overwhelming actor on the stage, in motion pictures, nor even in the pulpit. He would whirl arms, bang tables, glare from mad eyes, vomit biblical wrath from a gaping mouth, but he would also coo like a nursing mother, 
beseech like an aching lover, and in between tricks would coldly and almost contemptuously jab his crowds with figures and facts. Figures and facts that were inescapable even when, as often happened, they were entirely incorrect. But below this surface stagecraft was his uncommon natural ability to be authentically excited by and with his audience, and they by and with him. He could dramatize his assertion that he was neither a Nazi nor a fascist, but a Democrat, a homespun Jeffersonian, Lincolnian, Clevelandian, Wilsonian Democrat. And, sans scenery and costume, he'd make you see him veritably defending the capital against barbarian hordes, all the while innocently presenting as his own warm-hearted democratic inventions every anti-libertarian, anti-Semitic madness of Europe. Aside from his dramatic glory, Buzz Windrip was a professional common man. He believed in the desirability and therefore the sanctity of thick buckwheat cakes with adulterated maple syrup in rubber trays for the ice cubes in his electric refrigerator, in the especial nobility of dogs, all dogs, in being chummy with all waitresses at all junction lunchrooms, and in Henry Ford. When he became president, he exulted. Maybe he could get Mr. Ford to come to supper at the White House. And he believed in the superiority of anyone who possessed a million dollars. He regarded spats, walking sticks, caviar, titles, tea drinking, poetry not daily syndicated in newspapers, and all foreigners, possibly excepting the British, as degenerate. But he was the common man twenty times magnified by his oratory, so that while the other commoners could understand his every purpose, which was exactly the same as their own, they saw him towering among them, and they raised hands to him in worship. Satire is ridiculous, or appears ridiculous, because it's getting down to essences and things that people just don't want to seize. Satire forces you to look at truths that you're kind of devoted to covering up. So who better to turn to for an explication of Sinclair Lewis and his dreads than another Minnesotan, even if he hasn't won the Nobel Prize yet? Walter Kern is the author of Up in the Air, made into a movie with George Clooney, and also of one of my favorite collections of short stories ever, called My Hard Bargain. Walter knows America, and Sinclair Lewis's work. I caught him between trips to North Dakota, the native fight against the access pipeline concerning him very much. If you read It Can't Happen Here Now, or if you just even read a summary of it, it is almost as though Trump turned it into a a manual. I mean, the slogans that Windrip promotes, the kind of excitement among people who feel thwarted, the promise of American renaissance, even in his everyman thing. I mean, Trump being able to promote himself as an everyman is is one of the great coups. But Lewis saw that format. And it may be because there were characters like that back then. I'm sure there were comparable ones. But he really really worked through the premise in a way that's wonderful. And I think he's going to be prophetic still, especially if Trump's elected, because what happens to Windrip is, you know, he starts to disappoint people. He can't pull off the magic tricks he's promised. And that causes, you know, chaos and bitterness and fragmentation. And I, I think that would be my expectation for a Trump presidency. The parallels are quite extraordinary. I mean, Windrip is a nativist. He rails against the Jews as Trump does Mexicans and Muslims. He basically is singing an ode to some disappeared or diminished great America. But there are other interesting things too. There is an external threat, the rise of 
fascism in Europe in Sinclair Lewis's day, our fear about ISIL today, that the presidential candidate exploits because he manages to make that external figure insidious. And there's something else, which is something that concerns me a lot. You have in It Can't Happen Here some fairly ineffectual liberals, Dorma's Jessup being one of them. And I worry that small L liberals in America are kind of sleepwalking to the edge of this precipice. And I imagine that's much the same worry that uh, Sinclair Lewis himself had. I don't think they're sleepwalking now. I, I think that they're on a holy crusade that may be ineffectual, <laughs> be only because they're not really addressing the root of what's happening. You know, they, they, they can't understand such wrongheadedness. And so they castigate it and lament it and make fun of it. But they don't see that they're appearing like characters that are easily dismissed by the kind of people who have this populist mind. It's always some elite that is finally the real other. You know, it might be brown people or people of others' religions, but it all resolves itself into some imagined elite that's overly intellectual and detached and so on. And, and often that elite, especially in the media here, makes the mistake of absolutely fulfilling stereotype. <laughs> I once sat in Covent Garden, we were both students in England some time back, and there was a woman on a bench just sort of feeding pigeons, and, and we started talking. She was a German woman, possibly homeless, but obviously a great reader, and she started talking about a German novelist called Wasserman and saying what a brilliant writer he was, but he didn't know how to resolve his plots. He was always throwing his characters overboard or sending them to Canada, and in It Can't Happen Here... Jessup, the liberal who's opposing Winthrop, flees to Canada. So does the, the vice president, one of Winthrop's allies. Do you feel that Sinclair Lewis adequately resolved his plot? Was it a petering out or, as you describe, prophetic? Well, okay, here's a couple of problems with the book, after all my praise of it. Because it was happening, you know, in the shadow of World War II, a lot of it seems like a, just a translation of what happened with fascism in Europe. You know, there are concentration camps and so on. I don't imagine concentration camps under a Trump presidency. I don't imagine him employing these sort of large-scale social technologies that the European fascists did. And because it looked like, in a weird way, it, it was just a transliteration of Germany, I think its real accomplishment wasn't appreciated. And, and that's that it really traced the American perennial boobism, kind of, you know, that, that, that Lewis had been looking at since Babbitt and since Main Street. There's this kind of aggressively stupid posing as commonsensical streak in Americans, you know. They're so suspicious of thought. They're so suspicious of critical or multi-sided thought. They want to be direct. They want to be straightforward. It's all in our myth to cut through the BS. And the politicians who create these crazes are always doing that. Hillary Clinton sounds like the consummate bureaucrat, the person who's studied all the books and talked to all the Harvard experts. But Donald Trump is the one who says, you know, like you, I operate on common sense. Like you, I don't get caught up in the details. And that, and that's this sort of siren song for the American psyche, that frontier good sense and basic pluck and savvy is far better than knowing things.
On my way home from the gym, I stopped by the grocery store. Two store employees, both teenagers, are stacking canned peas in aisle four. There's really no good choices this year, says the boy. Yep, says the girl. I honestly feel like there isn't even that much difference between them, says the boy. Yep, says the girl. A customer comes up, asks about where to find couscous. They don't know where the couscous is. You know what scares me the most, says the boy. Losing this amazing job, says the girl and laughs. Nope, says the boy. Terrorists, says the girl. Bombs, the fact that we can't trust the police. Nope, nope, nope. What then? The zombie apocalypse, says the boy, and they both laugh. As I leave the store, I see them still huddled together, the peas unstacked. Their voices are tender, their shoulders almost touch. I realize they're in love. In the 1930s, the world succumbed to a wave of these authoritarian dictatorships that appeared to be the wave of the future. Uh, that seemed to be the way in which history was going. And people appeased it or made their peace with it or resisted it, but that seemed to be the future. David Frum, the second of this program's United States Canadian plants, is a longtime Republican, political commentator, and former speechwriter for George W. Bush. He's also an author of the novel Patriots, a satire of Washington life. Frum's of two minds about Sinclair Lewis's work, but he's particularly keen on Robert Penn Warren's 1946 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the flawed hero Willie Stark, a corrupted political figure loosely based on the Louisiana governor Huey Long. In the years after 1945, we really stopped being preoccupied with this wave of the past. Um, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men talks about a populist figure. The novel's written after World War II, I believe, but it's set in the 1930s, which is when uh, Huey Long had his political career before he was assassinated, if I recall right, in 
time of mass migration, um, which is destabilizing, which is threatening. These are real fears. And again, the creative imagination deals with real fears, just as the political imagination deals with real fears. Do you ever look at um, Trump, and, who is the sort of living embodiment of so much of this, and think, could I have imagined this person? I'm saying that because comics, even, Canada's Mark Critch, have failed in their attempts to send up yeah. Trump because they don't match his fascinating idiosyncrasies and excess. But Trump is not going to be an interesting personality for a writer because of his narcissistic personality disorder. But if someone is just a pure villain without self-knowledge, they're a creature of pantomime. Um, what makes villainy literarily interesting is either some degree of moral complexity. The villain isn't as bad or the villain has a story to tell, as, for example, does Willie Stark, uh, Huey Longfinger, and warns all the king's men. Or else the villain is, is deeply doubled, is died all the way through, there's nothing about that villainy, but at least he's self-conscious of his villainy and can talk about it in an objective way. There's a lack of empathy, a lack of self-knowledge in Trump. Um, and he's, he's not trying to be a bad person in his way, he's trying to fill a hole in his soul that he can never fill because of his own blockages in his brain. The things he does may be interesting in a shocking and upsetting way, but he himself can't be because he lacks the things that make the character rich. So what is it in Willie Stark in All the King's Men? What, what is the human element that allows us to empathize or begin to relate? Oh, Willie Stark, he poses the fundamental political question that Willie Stark is someone who intends some degree of good. He mixes his intention for some degree of good with an intention for some degree of bad. And he joins his aspirations for good with means that are illegitimate. From Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. The Chronicle had a long editorial lauding the courage and sound sense of the handful of men in the Senate who were making a fight against the administration's tax bill, which would throttle business and enterprise in the state. There was a cartoon opposite the editorial. It showed the boss, Willie Stark, or rather, a figure with the boss's head but a great swollen belly, dressed in a buster brown suit with the little pants tight above great hairy thighs. On one knee, the monster balanced a big pudding, and from the gaping hole in the top had just plucked a squirming little creature. The pudding bore the label, The State, and the squirming little creature the label, Hardworking Citizen. From the mouth of the boss's head came one of those balloons of words the comic strip artists used to indicate the speech of their characters. It said, Oh, what a good boy am I. Under the cartoon was the caption, Little Jack Horner. I read on down through the editorial. It said that our state was a poor state and could not bear the burden thus tyrannically imposed upon it. That was an old one. Every time the boss cracked down, income tax, mineral extraction tax, liquor tax, every time, it had been the same thing. The pocketbook is where it hurts. A man may forget the death of the father, but never the loss of the patrimony. This is a poor state, the opposition always screamed. But the boss said, there is a passel of poor folks living in it, and no mistake, but the state isn't poor. It's just a question of who's got his front feet in the trough when the slopping time comes. And I aim to do me some shoving and thump me some snouts. And he had leaned forward to the crowd with a shagged down forelock and the bulging eyes and had lifted his right arm to demand of them and of the hot sky, Are you with me? Are you with me? And the roar had come. More money for graft, the opposition always screamed. 
Sure, the boss had said, lounging easy. Sure, there's some graft, but there's just enough to make the wheels turn without squeaking. And remember this, there never was a machine rigged up by man didn't represent some loss of energy. How much energy do you get out of a lump of coal when you run a steam dynamo or a locomotive compared to what there actually is in that lump of coal? Damn little. Well, we do a hell of a lot better than the best dynamo or locomotive ever invented. Sure, I got a bunch of crooks around here, but they're too lily-livered to get very crooked. I got my eye on them. And do I deliver the state something? I damn well do. So Guy Vanderhaeg was in town. He's another old friend and one of Canada's great novelists. He lives in Saskatoon, and there's something about that province that makes its citizens steady, unflappable witnesses to American life. The Midwest is contiguous, and alongside shared agricultural habits and interests, a history of indigenous and then settler migrations across borders previously unmarked have solidified kindred ties. Hell, when I was a kid working seismic out of Estevan, Saskatchewan, crop-dusting planes would occasionally land carrying young drinkers from North Dakota because of more accommodating drinking laws in the Canadian province. Guy shames me, does his research, goes right back to the start. Jack London's 1908 charged and didactic novel The Iron Heel, in this case. It's a novel of strike-breaking days that vilifies those whom today we'd call the 1%, America's controlling corporate class the target. From Jack London's The Iron Heel. The years of prosperity were now to be paid for. All markets were glutted, all markets were falling, and, amidst the general crumble of prices, the price of labor crumbled fastest of all. The land was convulsed with industrial dissensions. Labor was striking here, there, and everywhere. And where it was not striking, it was being turned out by the capitalists. The papers were filled with tales of violence and blood. And through it all, the Black Hundreds played their part. Riot, arson, and wanton destruction of property was their function. And well, they performed it. All cities and towns were like armed camps, and laborers were shot down like dogs. Out of the vast army of the unemployed, the strikebreakers were recruited. And when the strikebreakers were worsted by the labor unions, the troops always appeared and crushed the unions. Never had labor received such an all-around beating. The great captains of industry, the oligarchs, had for the first time thrown their full weight into the breach the struggling employers' associations had made. These associations were practically middle-class affairs, and now, Compelled by hard times and crashing markets, and aided by the great captains of industry, they gave organized labor an awful and decisive defeat. It was an all-powerful alliance, but it was an alliance of the lion and the lamb, as the middle class was soon to learn. Labor was bloody and sullen, but crushed. Yet its defeat did not put an end to the hard times. The banks, themselves constituting one of the most important forces of the oligarchy, continued to call in credits. The Wall Street Group turned the stock market into a maelstrom, where the values of the land crumbled away almost to nothingness, and out of all the rack and ruin rose the form of the nascent oligarchy, imperturbable, indifferent, and sure. Its serenity and certitude was terrifying. Not only did it use its own vast power, but it used all the power of the United States Treasury to carry out its plans. The captains of industry had turned upon the middle class. 
Amidst the crashing of the middlemen, the small businessmen and manufacturers, the trusts stood firm. They sowed wind and wind and ever more wind, for they alone knew how to reap the whirlwind and make a profit out of it. And such profits, colossal profits, strong enough themselves to weather the storm that was largely their own brewing, they turned loose and plundered the wrecks that floated about them. The trusts added hugely to their holdings, even extending their enterprises into many new fields, and always at the expense of the middle class. Thus, the summer of 1912 witnessed the virtual death thrust to the middle class. Even Ernest was astounded at the quickness with which it had been done. He shook his head ominously and looked forward without hope to the fall elections. It's no use, he said. We're beaten. The Iron Heel's here. I had hoped for a peaceable victory at the ballot box. I was wrong. We'll be robbed of our few remaining liberties. The Iron Heel will walk upon our faces. Nothing remains but a bloody revolution of the working class. Of course we will win. But I shudder to think of it. Kai Vanderhaeg. London is a much more classic socialist. The people who take power take power out of naked self-interest. Jack London's novel is the least novel-like of these three books. It's studded with footnotes that are rooted in the facts of the time. So London will talk about the, the growth of the Socialist Party in the United States. And the powers that be, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, Standard Oil, and all the rest of it, know that at some point, this is in London's future that he's predicting, that they're going to lose political power, and that means they're going to lose economic power, and they will not allow that to happen. So they basically extend the whole system that's already in place of strike breakers, into a private army, and that private army is treated almost in the ways that the palace guards in Rome were treated. For me, the classic Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men is, literarily speaking, heads above anything else. What Robert Penn Warren is very good at capturing is the populist who, over time, becomes infatuated with power. And in that sense, it seems to me that he also captures something of Trump, except Willie Stark begins his political career for the noblest of motives and is a son of the people, initially wants to do a great deal of good. He wants to slap the faces of the same sort of power elite that Trump is talking about slapping the political bosses, but he gets swept up in his own desires. And I've read Jack London's The Iron Heel, and I've read It Can't Happen Here. And I think if you put those two novels together, you get a kind of composite dissection of what's happening in the States right now. Because I think what Lewis is very good at getting is the popular demagogue and the appeal to patriotism, uh, the ability to either stupefy the masses or incite them. And Buzz Windrip, even though power is torn from him by a kind of palace coup a little bit later on, seems to me to have many of the features that Trump has, except that Trump 
unlike Windrup, is nowhere near being a man of the people, which associates him, I think, more closely to the rather vague power elite in Jack London's The Iron Heel. The society he describes, with the vast accumulation of wealth in a very few hands, seems to me to describe what's happening all over the world, and and perhaps even most clearly in the States. So I think if you put those two things together, London and Lewis kind of capture the moment. So are there constants across these novels? There is the rise of the populist figure. I'm wondering if there's anything else that lies in whatever is the specter looming of the horizon of these writers' imaginations and their discontents. I think what lies behind most of these novels, even though they often don't state it very clearly, is the thing that often concerns artists, and that's freedom of speech and freedom of expression. When you speak of the freedom of speech, is it that they're trying to, in their novels, exercise some idea of what happens when that freedom of speech is pushed to a kind of negative extreme? You know, I think it's almost simpler than that. Even though London was a committed socialist of a certain kind, all of these writers, in one way or the other, probably most clearly in Lewis's case, in an odd way, they're small L liberals, all of the people who are writing writing these these novels. I mean, fundamentally, that's what they are. And except for London, they're people who see a certain virtue in the old American Republican tradition and actually hearken back to the past in a sense of preserving what's best in America. Like when Trump says let's make America great again. He can't even begin to define what that greatness means. He can't even begin to define what he means when he says America's great again. I was in the bar last night, and there was a guy wearing a Trump badge down there and was actually barking that phrase over and over again. And he looked insane. A man yelling, I am a patriot, I am a patriot, I am a patriot, which is kind of like the Sinclair Lewis novel. At home, I check my email. My inbox bursts with politics. If the election goes badly, one friend writes, I'm moving with you to Canada. You'll take me in, right? Another friend sends me a picture of Kate Middleton smiling at the Prime Minister. My friend is a curmudgeon who doesn't like anything, but he loves this. Another friend writes, After the last week, if you split me open, my rage would blacken the sky. The sonic waves of my rage scream would alter the arrangement of the cosmos. How did we get here? How do we get out of this place? I scroll and delete, scroll and delete, until I'm staring at a blank screen. I wait to see what comes next. In It Could Happen Here, today's edition of 128 Sterling, you heard Here, Pussy, a new poem by Lynn Crosby, and original prose by Alex Aline, whose Scotiabank Giller shortlisted novel Inside and short story collection Signs and Wonders are published by the House of Anansi. David Frum's novel Patriots is available as an e-book on Amazon and other sites. Walter Kern's most recent book, the memoir Blood Will Out, is published by W. W. Norton 
and will be the subject of a future issue of this program. Guy Vanderhaeg's fine novels and stories are published by McClelland and Stewart. Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here and Robert Penn Warren's Pulitzer Prize-winning All the King's Men are widely available and well worth the read, as is Jack London's The Iron Heel, now out of copyright and most easily found online. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. Charles Spiron does the musical bits and Janet Green is our excellent reader. Next week, an anthology of lost things. Thanks for listening. <laughs>